0: Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Benio. On this episode, I'm very excited to bring the conversation I had with Vincent Ciroldi. Uh, Vinny is the current uh, secretary of Maryland's Department of Juvenile Services. He's previously been the commissioner of New York City's Department of Correction. Uh, he has also been uh, director of juvenile corrections in Washington, D.C., uh, commissioner of New York City Department of Probation, He's been Senior Policy Advisor to NYC's Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice, uh, and many other appointments. He has a Master's in Social Work from New York University, and he's really been working in the field of uh, criminal and juvenile justice and mass incarceration reform for more than four decades. Uh, So he's he's well-experienced, he's an absolutely, wonderfully nice person. And uh, we had a great conversation about his, uh, his book. The book is called Mass Supervision, Probation, Parole, and the Illusion of Safety and Freedom out through a new press. And uh, that, is, that is what we talk about. We start the conversation by talking about the current landscape of mass incarceration, probation, and parole. Talk about the causes for high rates of incarceration and probation. The history of probation and parole impact of Nixon's war on drugs, the Martinson report, effects of bias, stereotypes, racism. We talk about uh, the case example of Meek Mill, a famous rapper that had this big, 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 long case. And we use it as an example to talk about some of the high incarceration rates in Philadelphia and Baltimore. We talk about alternative methods for improving probation and parole and the future of probation and parole. I have to say it was so much fun talking with Vinny about uh, a really important topic. Um, I think something that's really important here is whether you've been involved in the legal system or things like that, it connects to us. We all know somebody that has. um, And many times, unfortunately, people, you know, get these really extended uh, kind of sentences or they're on parole for too long or all these things. And um, of course, we we obviously should be able to have a good, um, healthy, uh, ethical, uh, you know, system to to protect uh, citizens. But uh, unfortunately, there is so much um, bad elements that just keep going and going, especially for um, certain populations and certain groups. And so, Vinny's doing great work in this area. He has been again in in New York and in D.C. and, and in and now in the the great state of Maryland, and so his he, uh, his work is much needed. So now, as always, you can find this conversation and uh, all other conversations at Converging Dialogs at Substack.com. Uh, you can also find it on YouTube. So subscribe, follow, donate at both of those places if you're if you're willing, and uh, make sure you get his book. And uh, now I bring you Vincent Cerardi. I am here with Vincent Chiraldi. Uh Vinny, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to our conversation about uh, an important topic. Thanks for having me on, Xavier. Yeah, of course. So you've written a great book called <laughs> Mass Supervision, Probation, Parole, and the Illusion of Safety and Freedom. Uh, this is uh, very, very good. It's very, very important. So we're going to talk all about it. Uh, before we do, why don't you just kind of give your potted biography, just professionally, academically, to uh, to listeners.
1: Sure thing. I So I think the most
0: relevant bit
1: for this book is that I used to be commissioner of New York City probation under Mayor Bloomberg. I, I've run a couple of other big departments, the city's Department of Correction, Rikers Island. Uh, I ran juvenile justice for Washington, D.C. I'm now running juvenile for Maryland. Uh, but... I've also had stints in Harvard and Columbia University, and I founded two nonprofits, the Center Mm -hmm. on Juvenile and Criminal Justice and Justice Policy Institutes, both sort of researchy, advocacy, direct service
0: groups. What is it that, I guess, kind of... You know, maybe not necessarily academically, but, you know, uh, people go to college, they get degrees, whatever. But what is it that kind of got you into this world where you've done it in a bunch of different places? You know, you're still doing it. You've done it in some pretty big cities, you know, New York, D.C., Baltimore in um, Maryland for the state. So how did you kind of get in this world and, and, and stay in this world? Huh? What's kind of kept you there? That's a
1: great question. So I, I in college, I did an internships, you know, I was I was. Big into experiential learning and I did one with a bunch of kids in a home run by the state they were uh, in there because of delinquency and uh, I you know I just fell in love with it I started to uh, get a job on the weekends there where I would live in it for the weekend and then when I graduated they hired me and I uh, you know slept there all week it was I went to work on Sunday and came home on Friday seven wow. juvenile delinquent boys it was wow. really interesting and you know then I was getting my master's degree in social work in upstate New York at Syracuse. Mm. And a guy spoke in my class named Jerome Miller, who had closed all of the juvenile facilities in the state of Massachusetts over a two-year period and put the kids into you know, foster care, back home with services. And the outcomes were really good. The recidivism rates were lower and the kids were successful. And Jerry had a lot of bad things to say about people who worked for systems like I was, like people Mm. like me. Mm. And I argued with him and I, you know, chased him down the hall, went down the elevator. And then he hired me by the time I got to the ground floor to work at his nonprofit, the National Mm. Center on Institutions and Alternatives, sort of pushing back against mass incarceration really early on in mass incarceration in 1980. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just I stayed in that. And, and and tugged and pushed against mass incarceration all the way up to two thousand five when the mayor of DC, the system was just awful. Kids were getting beaten up and sexually assaulted and drugs were incredibly rampant in the facility. And the, the Was this court, during the, the
0: Mary and Barry years or Anthony Williams? What years?
1: You know, it was all it's like mayor after mayor. It was a twenty year <sighs> consent decree. It was Mayor Williams who hired me, uh-huh. but uh-huh. I was the Nineteenth director in that twenty years, believe it or not. Uh,
0: uh, yeah, uh.
1: and the plaintiffs had made a motion to put the whole department into receivership just to take it over. Mm. Um, and so I think he was kind of desperate because you know I'm, mm. I'm not a, I wasn't at that time a typical uh, department head because I'd never run a department. Um, and in five years we really really turned that around. Um, and then again I was done. I was those were dog years. It was really a lot of resistance, yeah. but you know it was closed that facility. The conditions were much, much better. But then Mayor Bloomberg just sort of recruited me out of nowhere to run the probation department in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where I grew up. And it was, you mm-hmm. know, Bloomberg, I know there's a lot of parts about him that a lot of people objected to, but they were governing in a very, very interesting way. They were really experimenting with a lot of stuff. And when I went, I just left it on, I left it on the floor in that in that meeting. I did not pull mm-hmm. any punches. I was Vinnie the liberal. I w- I didn't want to get hired and move up there and have him discover me afterwards. Uh, <laughs> because I knew, you know, they were doing stop and frisk. They didn't have a reputation yeah, yeah. for hiring people like me. Let's mm. just say it that way. Uh, but, you know, uh, to his credit, he was like, look, I want people to be safer. I don't need them to be incarcerated. I just need to, you know, I need us to be safer. You can figure out a way to do that. Mm. I'm in. And so that, that then I became probation commissioner. So. <laughs> That's, wow. that's what got me at least to that part of my career.
0: Wow, that's, that's, that's a fascinating story. It's really, really interesting how a lot of the times you'll hear people they'll have, you know, they start out doing one thing and then, you know, they just their world takes them somewhere else and they're doing something else. And But every now and then you'll hear stories kind of like yours where you just kind of start early. And you just stay in it and you, you, you do all the, all of the hard work and, and, and move your way up and have really big influence and try and make big changes, you know, uh, systemically or structurally, which is great, which is great. Just super important. So <clears throat> we have this, um, this is, it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to know that there's been uh, cycles to this, right? There have been cycles of you got to get tough on crime you know, there's too much delinquency, there's too much, uh, too many issues, you know, things like that. And more recently, um, I think is probably a good thing, although there's pros and cons to to everything, I guess, but there's been less of that and more of how do we provide less incarceration, especially for minor offenses? How do we uh, give more rehabilitation and you know, all of these things, which I'm in theory, you know, for I think each city and each state is probably different. But there's all these uh, swinging of the pendulum, if you will, of how nationally or maybe locally people feel about uh, what to do when there are, is crime in cities or states or even at a national level. So at the moment, what do you what can you give us as kind of this snapshot of the current landscape of parole Probation and incarceration in the United States, uh, whatever whatever facts or data are relevant here, just kind of just kind of give us a, a snapshot of of what we're dealing with in you know 2023, almost 2024.
1: Sure. So <clears throat> I'll start with a little about mass incarceration, sort of celebrated, if you will, or commemorated, or mourned. Mm. Its 50th anniversary last year. Uh, mm. Basically, most people track it back to Richard Nixon's declaration of war on drugs in 1972. Yeah. Um, and that really kind of changed the conversation around crime and punishment. It's hard for us to remember those of us who, you know, kind of weren't aware. And I certainly wasn't in 72. I was 13 years old. So I wasn't politically aware, but you know, prior to that time, crime and punishment just wasn't a salient issue. Mm. Uh, it wasn't something people ran on it. Prison populations were so small that they were not a they were not a player in state systems uh, like education would be, for example. Um, and then you know, starting in seventy two, the prison population grows every year until two thousand and eight, which is just mm. completely unprecedented. Mm. So you go back to seventy two; we had about a typical uh, incarceration rate for Western nation. By the time we get to 2008, we have about eight times the typical Mm. uh, uh, number for most Western nations, some five times, some ten times. Um, And um, ostensibly, probation and parole are set up to buffer against that. Uh, Probation at the front end. okay, Xavier, you've committed a crime. The judge could send you to jail. He could also put you on probation. I'm going to give you a chance. You go on probation. Uh, And he'll, the PO will help you turn your life around, but also supervise you and parole at the back end. You did something bad enough to go to prison, but if you play by the rules while you're locked up and you get some programming in, the parole board will say you're really rehabilitated. You can go home now. Instead of three years, you can go home in a year. But again, it's conditional. A parole officer is going to watch over you and you have to obey certain rules. That, although you would think that when that went up, incarceration would go down that mushrooms by about fivefold between nineteen eighty and two thousand seven. That's its peak. Then mm-hmm. we don't have data before nineteen eighty. So it's growing right alongside incarceration. So part of what was intriguing about writing the book is to sort of explore why would that be. You would mm-hmm. think that if an alternative grew fivefold, that the thing it was an alternative to would shrink. And that's not what we saw.
0: Mm. So, now these this is nationally, right? This is, you know, kind of averages and stuff. So, obviously, in certain cities and states, it's going to be higher. In certain cities and states, it's going to be lower. But in the aggregate, there's an increase, right? right. What are some of the... Um, mm, Really. Antecedents for this. What are the precursors for this? Of why this continues? You know, so if, if mass incarceration is a big issue and it keeps increasing, and you try to offset it by, you know, parole or probation, and that continues to increase along with uh, incarceration, I mean, what's going on? Like, what? What <laughs> is it? Just is it just really punitive in the judicial system? Is it certain? You know, laws? You know, congressionally that are getting passed that are are, are also extended that way. What's, what's going on with why this was such an increase?
1: Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, I, I was an advocate for 25 years before I really went into government in a big way. You know, if you leave the house parent when I was in my twenties aside, um, you know, now I'm in my forties and I, I go into running a city system. And when I went in, you know, I sort of was arrogant. I, I, I thought I was going to be the savior for this department that was in such awful shape, uh, and I and I really had an attitude about the people that worked in it because I had you know read a lot of the materials, talked to the young people, uh, seen the newspaper articles, and there were just a lot of awful things happening. And I assumed that they were going to all be a bunch of sadistic bastards when I met mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I the one thing I did right even though I had that attitude, was I spent a lot of time with them. I I hung out on the midnight shift. I put my office in the facility um, and just spent a lot of time hanging out with staff and getting to Mm. know them. And there was a range. It's like any other bell curve, right? You got heroes Mm. on one end. You got sadistic bastards on the other end. But most people are right in the middle there trying to figure out how to survive in a system that they know was brutal. They weren't stupid. Mm. Mm -hmm. They know they knew exactly everybody in that place knew who was selling those kids drugs. It was one Mm -hmm. correctional officer who had the nicest car in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this guy was absent so many times uh, that he he actually used up all his sick time. It's almost impossible to use up all your sick time as a government employee in a correctional Mm -hmm. facility. But this Mm -hmm. guy didn't need his pay. All Mm -hmm. his money was coming in through selling drugs to the kids. Mm -hmm. And you can't be in a 280 bed facility and everybody doesn't know who that guy is. Right. right. So, and who the guy is that's beating the kids up and who the guy is that's having sex with the kids. Because mm-hmm. right? all of that was happening. Mm-hmm. And so, but once you got to know folks, you realize it was really, really complicated as to what their motivations were. You know, I, as I said, I was the 19th director in 20 years, and we all give a good speech in the first five minutes. Mm-hmm. So, you're a staff member in there, Xavier. You're thinking, do I buy into this guy's stuff? Mm-hmm. Because if he's gone in five minutes, mm-hmm. my, my colleagues are going to be like, you're a chump.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, you know, when you ask me about, you know, why it got this way with probation, I know this is a long way of answering that. But I, as an advocate, I used to think that a lot of this was animus, mm-hmm. that people wanted to lock black guys up.
0: Or it was, the, it was the system, right? It was the system that was out for them and all this kind of stuff. Or even rate. the individual POs a jerk or this mm. individual DA, mm. right?
1: Once you get in there, it's much more complicated than that. And, you know, I started spending time with my probation officers and I did 19 listening sessions. And the probation officers in New York were mostly black and Latino. And the people in under probation supervision were mostly black and Latino. And... I remember, you know, it took a while before people would talk to me because they were nervous that they'd get in trouble for speaking Mm -hmm. their minds. But then somewhere in the middle of the 19, people started to learn. You know, it was getting around that you could actually Mm -hmm. say what you wanted to this guy and you Mm -hmm. wouldn't get disciplined for it. And one guy said, we practice fear probation in this department. It's a we have a bunch of black and brown people locking up a bunch of black and brown people. Not because we think that's better for public safety, not because we think that'll help turn their lives around, but because we fear that if we don't lock them up, even if we make a good decision, a good reasoned decision, and something goes bad, you will throw us under the bus
0: hmm.
1: and that was that was worth nineteen listening tours to hear that uh, hmm. to try to figure out all right, what do we do with that and so I'm not saying that's all of it. I'm sure that there were plenty of legislators who passed things because they were mean and wanted to hurt people and plenty who thought that this was a way to achieve public safety. You know, I can't, it's hard to get in people's minds, but sure. you know, after 19 listening tours and four years of experience, and then spend a lot of time in the field, I keep hearing over and over and over again, this notion of a couple notions. One is risk aversion and the other is lack of resources. You got Mm -hmm. 150 guys on your caseload, they're drug problems and they don't have work and they're marginally housed. And, you know, if you want to get them housing or, you know, uh, drug treatment or mental health services, you got to hold a big sale. But Mm. you have one resource that's infinite prison. You just Mm. sign a piece of paper and this guy's going to get $50,000 worth of prison and no one's ever going to question you about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that sort of drives people in a direction that I'm not sure anybody intends.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's, it sounds it sounds like again, like you're saying, it's just very complex and complicated, and, and and all of a sudden you're you're kind of stuck in this kind of labyrinth of of how things are, and 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 sometimes can be difficult to kind of get out of. So let's uh, you mentioned Nixon, war on drugs, and all these things, and. Obviously, that was uh, uh, again very, uh, you know, punitive and just kind of top down, and it was very, very tough. But maybe let's scale back just a little bit and go a little bit, just briefly, just conceptually, in the history of probation in the United States. You can mention, you know, important figures if you want. But what if we, what have we tried to say in the United States at least? I don't know about other countries, but in the United States, of you do something wrong, here's here's the penalty for it, or how did we, how do we evolve? How did this evolve over, you know, decades and, you know, maybe from, you know, this period to this period, it was done this way, or in the 19th century, it was done this way. And, you know, how do we evolve into this kind of thing where, um, you know, there's an ebb and flow to this stuff, but where we conceptually say, we don't want to always help people. Sometimes we just want to punish them. And then maybe other periods where we say, well, that doesn't work. Maybe we do need to help people more. You know, so just kind of tell us a little bit of this ebb and flow of, of the history of, of uh, probation specifically and, and, and other ways of how we conceptually look at how to treat when, when people do certain wrongdoing.
1: Sure. So probation, parole and prisons in America, you know, traveled a similar path at the beginning, especially uh, about the ability to sort of redeem people, turn them around. Mm -hmm. Uh, society thought we could, you know, we can help fix them. Very Jacksonian, you know, um, that we're, you know, people can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. We can also help them pull them up. And so that's why we call our first prisons penitentiaries, right? You go in there and you make penitents and you come Mm -hmm. out a better person. It wasn't just meant to punish people Mm -hmm. and probation and parole were absolutely based on those premises. It was largely a, a, a helpful construct. They, And I I, I use that word deliberately because that's the the language that the founders used. Uh, They called it friendly. This is a friendly project, Uh, and uh, it built off of friendly visiting that women in in the uh, in the, the sort of settlement house projects were engaged in, where they would they would live in poor communities, visit the poor, which were then mostly Irish, Germans, Italians. Eastern Europeans that were flooding cities during the industrial revolution. And, and by virtue of their visiting them, the expectation was they would get better, uh, that they would associate themselves with these folks and they would just get better. Um, and so probation sort of mushrooms during this period, it starts in the 1800s, but it really hits its strides in the progressive era around the turn of the, uh, 20th century, early 1900s. And, um, that's happening at the same time as you have these people flooding into America's cities from Europe and from the South and rural communities. And, uh, you know, the systems were really not built for this. We didn't have the taxation systems to run, to establish enough courts, to process enough cases because you got people whose families are working during the day and their kids are running the streets. You know, they're working Mm. in sweatshops and uh, factories and their kids are running the streets and they're getting in trouble. Mm. Um, so it's this combination, a sort of swirling combination of factors of, you know, progressivism, paternalism, I'll call it. We, we want to sort of help these folks, but we also want to indoctrinate them into our, our white Anglo-Saxon ways. It's not very effective, right? Uh, it's, you know, um, and so uh, as time goes on, as more and more concern about the impact of probation and parole and its ability to serve as a meaningful alternative to incarceration and really to help people turn their lives around. It's not funded. People aren't trained well. Caseloads are too high. Then in the sixties, you know, you have a lot of upheaval, a lot of protests about the the uh, civil rights and and the Vietnam war. And there was a growing concern amongst what Richard Nixon would later dub the silent majority mm. uh, about how, what was happening to our country. It felt, very chaotic, like things were flying apart at the seams, not unlike how people are feeling a bit today. and um, uh, so Barry Goldwater seizes upon this and runs an overtly racially tinged campaign, even though he was originally a supporter of the civil uh, of civil rights and and the uh, uh, legislation towards that end. Um, and it's so overtly racial that he wins the whole South. But the only other state outside the South he wins is Arizona, his home state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nixon learns that lesson. And he, um, he starts uh, what we now call, I don't think they called it then, dog whistle, a dog whistle approach mm. to this. And, and instead of overtly talking about uh, uh, race, he talks about poverty and crime in a way that really hadn't happened before, um, as a way – to wink, wink, nod, nod to several constituencies he was trying to peel off from the Democratic Party, the South and suburban Northerners. Uh, So uh, in the book, I quote John Ehrlichman writing, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could re- disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And then, you know, later on, I, I also quote uh, uh, Haldeman with with a similar quote. Um, So into this now sort of swirling set of social factors comes a a kind of not well-known sociologist, uh, Robert Martinson, gets added on as Mm. the third author on a paper examining whether um, uh, programs in prisons in New York State prisons works. He's a City University of New York professor. And they, they study several hundred programs and find that most of them really weren't. The evaluations weren't, um, uh, well done. The programs weren't well-funded of the ones that were well-funded and had good evaluations. Some worked, some didn't. And so they kind of dumped the report because it d- has no strong conclusions. And Martinson's not happy about this. He feels that that was a political move. He, f- he also needs to publish to elevate himself in the field so several years later, without the permission of his co-authors, he distills that paper and publics, publicizes it in a neoconservative uh, public interest uh, magazine uh, about 1975. And it just, it just lands at this propitious moment. Uh, it gives uh, credence to Nixon's war on drugs, which he declares in 1972. Uh, and it says, see, we told you nothing works. And it's embraced, interestingly, by the left and the right. The right, because they felt that all this namby-pamby coddling of criminals, people are getting released early on parole, they're coming out and murdering people. This is crazy. The left, because they felt there's no way in the world people are getting rehabilitated in these prisons. It's not really being tried. And people are staying in prison longer because they're not being able to make parole because they don't have programs for them to go to to make parole. And oh, by the way, they're discriminating against black people and politically active people in prison. So whether you agree with that or not, just leave that aside. There's this sort of confluence of left and right, and they bury rehabilitation. It's the mm. death of rehabilitation. Mm. Um, and ironically, uh, Martinson recants a few years later in, in, you know, in a in a sort of obscure journal from Hofstra. Law school, uh, and says actually some programs do work, and and I overstated my original findings. Um, and one professor asks him, you know, what should I tell my students now about your your major work? And he literally says, tell them I was full of crap. And then later that year, he commits suicide. Oh my! Uh, yeah, oh, wow. he was abandoned oh, wow. by his friends on the left and the right. Mm. Um, mm. And so his story ends tragically. Yeah. Uh, but you know the March to Kill Rehabilitation was on. Now, you know, I've run a pretty nasty jail, Rikers Island, and I've Mm -hmm. run a pretty big probation department. If you're running a jail or a prison and this suddenly becomes about punishment and deterrence, you're fine. Mm -hmm. No one's saying I'm not punishing people if I'm running Rikers Island. No one's saying I'm not deterring people. I'm scaring the hell out of people. Nobody wants to go there. Mm
0: -hmm. But
1: if you're running a probation department or a parole department, and somebody says rehabilitation doesn't work anymore. Nothing works to rehabilitate people. What do you got? That's all mm-hmm. you're about. That's your whole, it's mm-hmm. like saying Kentucky fried chicken can't sell chicken anymore. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so the whole field pivots and it mm. really swings to the more managerial and punitive mm. and starts mm. to add conditions that may or may not have anything to do with public safety or rehabilitation and develops a hair trigger back to imprisonment. Starts arming probation officers that are in flak jackets. They dress more like cops. They do ride alongs with cops. And so now now it's just sort of, you know, kind of a race to the bottom uh, to bury rehabilitation and just get much more. And again, I don't necessarily want to say punitive as much as I want to say risk averse. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you mm-hmm. don't want is to show up on the evening news. You don't yeah. want to be the guy that didn't revoke Willie Horton. Or Richard Allen Davis, or Charlie Manson. You don't want to be that guy. So you might think Xavier can make it on the outside. He just missed a couple of appointments. He's got a family. He's got a job. He missed a couple of days there. He tested positive for pot. You know, it, it's usually never purely black or white. But now I get to decide. Not only am I taking a chance on you, I'm taking a chance on me. Mm-hmm. I'm taking a chance on my kids' college education and my mortgage. And, you know, you can't keep putting people in that position as POs. Eventually they're going to cave.
0: You know, I, I'm listening to this and, and, and it just, it's still, I mean, I get some of the arguments of sorts, but I, 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 it, feels, it feels like we're inadvertently or, 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 or directly, we're just kind of objectifying people. Right. That we forget the humanity of people and we're seeing them as objects or we're seeing them as numbers on a page or, you know, a quota or things like that. Or it's just seeing them as, you know, um, know, convicts or, or, you know, whatever. And I guess, you know, maybe this is a little bit wider uh, scope here. So if you don't want to speak to it, that's fine. But I mean, a lot of people, I could hear a lot of sociologists, I could hear a lot of, you know, maybe social psychologists, etc., a lot of people are going to come in, chime in here and say, there's unconscious bias that's coming in here. There's racism coming in here. There's stereotypes. You know, these you know, people already have these ideas of young black men. And then and, and and so the PO has just already written the script and that's it. You know how I mean, again, obviously this happens, unfortunately. Obviously, there's going to be individuals that, you know, think this way, whether they should or not. But I guess, I mean, you've worked in a handful of cities, Uh, you know, systemically, do do we really see that? Do we see as a system, as as, as departments that, yeah, there's a big problem with people being racist or having, you know, these biases unchecked or stereotypes or do we do we do we see a lot of that? Or is this, you know, people are making this more than what it is.
1: I think of it more like an onion. You know, you just got to kind of peel the layers bit by bit. Mm. So I'll start with I'm a black 19-year-old smoking pot in a park in my neighborhood. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Or I'm a white 19-year-old smoking pot in my basement, Mm -hmm. right? Because I got a basement in a Mm -hmm. suburban house and my parents Mm -hmm. are out. Uh, and I got a house big enough where I can actually smoke pot Mm -hmm. and my parents won't know about it. Those are the same act, uh, but one is much more likely to be arrested for that act, partly because it's in the street and partly because there's a lot more cops in that black kid's neighborhood, by and large, right? Uh, And not in that white kid's suburban neighborhood. So now you've got, you know, more focused policing. So all sorts of behaviors that teenagers commit start to accrue points on what will eventually be a risk assessment instrument. Cause I'm mm-hmm. not trying to sit here and tell you anybody's in prison for smoking a joint. They're not right. Mm-hmm. Or almost nobody is, but it's just start. You start to accrue this sort of criminal uh, collection of bad stuff that will one day stack up and uh, make you look like a bad guy. Even all other things being equal. So you got saturated policing. Uh, in in communities of color. Uh, then you got unconscious bias, right? You've, you've taken that test I have. Um, you know, there's a suggestion that uh, people see black people, uh, whether they're white or black, as more criminally prone, and they are more likely to be punitive when responding to them. I cite a bunch of studies in the paper that show that, that actually literally read through uh, anonymized probation reports and controlled for prior offense and current arrest. And the probation officers were recommending longer sentences and more uh, incarceration for the black kids than the white kids when you control for those other factors. Then you're on probation and you're poor. So for a while I worked in academia. And if I was on probation and I had to go to the probation office, and sit there for two and a half hours waiting to see my PO while they resolve some emergency with some other guy on their caseload. Nobody's going to kick me out of that university. Who even knows what a university professor does during the day, right? So, so there's all sorts of advantages you have when you are middle class or rich you can drive to the place. If you have to have drug treatment, you can get drug treatment. Um, you know, it's it's just a there's just just stack of advantages that it's hard to even imagine that you have that other people don't have. Um, and so then you know you, then you get to the, the to the final point where which is like part of what you got to do under supervision is you got to pay fees. Mm-hmm. Right? You have to pay to be on probation. Sometimes you have to pay for drug treatment and drug uh, testing. Sometimes you have to pay for electronic monitoring. You have to pay fines for the courts. And again, all of that's going to accrue uh, benefits to people who have more money, who tend to be whiter people. And uh, the people who have less money get less of a good deal. So when you stack all that up, it doesn't even have to be overt racism. It just all sort of stacks up against uh, poor people who are disproportionately black and Latino.
0: Yeah, it's such a—I I can't help but think that, <clears throat> you know, I think that some people really overemphasize some of these things, but I think a lot of people definitely minimize it. And um, I can't help but think that yes, there, we had in 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 the seventies and throughout the eighties and even the early nineties. Just a lot of, uh, you know, administrations, uh, uh, presidential administrations, and and uh, uh, legislation that really made it tough. I mean, it was like a law and order type of thing. There, there is, a, you know, a ripple effect of, of some of this stuff. But you know, I do think that there is probably, or at least trying to to try and have a, a shift towards that. Mm-hmm. so I, I do want to talk about kind of where we're at and where we're going a little bit so maybe let's bring in some of the the examples you give uh in the book which is super interesting so the big one big one that you talk about and i remember this story a wild story wild wild story is this story about meek mill so many people or know meek mill is a rapper from uh, philadelphia um and he, he has this crazy story. So I won't tell it. You can tell it. But it was, a, it was wild to me how <laughs> I think he made this point. And I think he made this point accurately was it took him because he knew a bunch of billionaires and running it up the chain for something to finally happen. And his point was when I was coming up. That wouldn't have been the case. I would have. I would have been absolutely, you know, put away for a long time for something completely, you know, not okay. And because I got Robert Kraft and and, and all of these billionaires, you know, on, on my on my, uh, you know, kind of advocating for me. It, and the point is, it, it shouldn't take that. So, anyways, uh, you tell tell this story about you know what happened to Meek Mill. And, and, and really just is a kind of exhibit A for, you know, how bonkers this kind of system is.
1: Yeah. So 19 years old, Mick Mill gets arrested on a gun drug charge. Uh, he maintains his innocence to this day on that charge. And the only evidence against him was one police officer who was later put on a do not call list from oh. the district attorney's office. Do not call mm-hmm. meaning don't have this guy testify in court uh, because he's suspect. Mm. Um, so that's the evidence against Meek Mill. It's his only uh, conviction. Gets uh, a year and a half to, to two. I'm sorry, 11 months to two years in prison, in jail. And then for, three for years for
0: possession of a, of a firearm. Of without... a gun,
1: yeah, not use. Possession of uh-huh. a gun and possession of drugs. Uh-huh. So. Uh, 11 11 and a half months to two years, and then um, uh, three years probation. Uh, Mm -hmm. In Pennsylvania, which is unusual, you can continue to extend probation if you think the person's not doing well enough under Mm -hmm. supervision. The judge can. So uh, Meek Mill's got a particularly interventionist judge who uh, engages in this nine-year-long game of cat and mouse with him,
0: it was a woman, right? Is that, yeah. Is that right? Yeah.
1: Yep. yeah. Continually extending his probation. Uh, she extends it for, she orders him to go ladle soup at a soup kitchen. Uh, he, she gets there and instead of ladling soup, he's folding clothes. She holds a hearing and brings him in and threatens him with a violation. Uh, she won't let him travel out of the state to do music gigs where he's going to make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, she keeps just cont- – he doesn't commit a new crime. <laughs> the mm-hmm. important thing is nine right. years, no new convictions. He just keeps extending his probation over and, and over. He was,
0: he was compliant with all of these things, correct?
1: Yeah, and 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 also he, he is compliant. He's now making real money. Like when he mm-hmm. started, he was just a 19-year-old kid.
0: Mm-hmm. Now he's mm-hmm.
1: like – he's being repped by Jay-Z's Roc Nation. Mm-hmm. I'm an old white guy, so I never heard of him. But, like, he's becoming famous. He's filling stadiums, right? Right. And so uh, so now 12 years after his offense, uh, he gets in a fight with a paparazzi in an airport. Nobody gets hurt. It's, a, it's an altercation between two people. And then he's in New York City filming a, a music video before he's going to go on a Tonight Show. And some kids come by in a, uh, you know, with those ATVs, you know, all-terrain mm-hmm. vehicles. Mm-hmm. And they know, they recognize him. They say, hey, you're Meek Mill. You want to ride my ATV? He does. He pops a wheelie on it, and he gets a ticket for that, right? So those are his two violations. She sends him to two to four years. Both of those cases are dismissed. Mm. So now, before we get, let me just take a half step back on that, right? Sure, sure, sure. Um, he hangs out with the 76ers. And mm-hmm. one of the owners of the 76ers is this guy Michael Rubin, who's a sells sports paraphernalia. He's a billionaire, mm-hmm. and uh, they become friends. And and then you know, so when this is happening, he's explaining to Michael that he thinks he's going to end up going to prison when he goes to court. And Michael's like, "What are you talking about? You didn't? Did you get convicted of anything? Did you hurt anybody? Did you do anything? No, no, no. But you know, this judge she's 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 out for me. So Michael's like, "There's no way you're not going to prison." He's like. Yo, man, like, there's two Americas. There's a black America and a white America. Mm. In my America, you go to prison for this. I'm bringing my toothbrush with me when I go to court. Mm-hmm. And Michael's like, forget it. You're wrong. I'll go to court and I'll talk to the judge. You know, we white privileged guys that have a billion dollars in our pocket think we can fix the world. But to his credit, at least he tried. Mm-hmm. And Meek Mill got two to four years in prison. And that's when Ruben hooks up with Jay Z. And Robert Kraft, who they, you know, they all know, billionaires all hang out together mm-hmm. and formed a reform alliance, yeah. uh, which is devoted to reducing uh, the number of people on probation and parole and revocations and the punitiveness. But also they launch the free meek campaign, mm-hmm. uh, all, all sorts of athletes,
0: you know, no, every, everybody, every, everybody was. Uh, I saw that plastered everywhere, everywhere. And at first, like, a lot of people would be very confused they'd be like well i mean what's he what's he doing over there, or what happened and then when like it just take like five minutes for people to tell hear the story, and they're like there's no way that's insane there's no way yep. and then, and then I mean I didn't really hear anybody really resist it. everybody kind of like that knew about it and about the whole like campaign was like, yeah, of course <laughs> it's just well, I mean, ridiculous too,
1: even with all of that on his side. <clears throat> The biggest piece of luck he had was that Larry Krasner was the district attorney of Philadelphia at that time because mm. Krasner didn't oppose his release. If a mm. D.A. was pounding on the table and saying this guy should stay in prison, I don't know that Meek Mill's out on the street today. He
0: Did he do two years? No, 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 no.
1: No, no. Oh. He, he was out in a few months. They appealed his case
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they actually got him out on the appeal. Not that the, that was unjust or that the judge couldn't do that. The judge could do that. Mm-hmm. She could have locked him up for two to four years. Yeah, yeah It yeah. was on the original. That's why I mentioned the uh, the 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 evidence against him and that uh, police officer, because that's what helped him win his appeal. A judge, the appellate court said, uh, had the jury known about the record of the uh, arresting officers, uh, you know, their lack of truthfulness, uh, they they suspected that the evidence would have gone a different way. So he was. He ultimately was acquitted of that original charge, pled to some misdemeanor which involved no probation, and he's out free now.
0: But it's just p- preposterous that at nineteen you're still dealing with that in your thirties. Again, he didn't kill anybody, he <laughs> <All right, laughs> didn't me- assault anybody. mean, it wasn't like you know, it's, it's that at that level of felony? I mean, it's it's preposterous. It's All absolutely right. preposterous. There was a nonprofit
1: group in New York that called me to speak to their board of directors because they were doing a randomized control trial for their services. Mm -hmm. All their services are parole. People on parole get referred to them for help getting a job. And they wanted to see, do we have a statistically significant impact on improving uh, the likelihood that these people will get a job? And does that reduce recidivism? So they're Mm -hmm. randomly assigning people to control and study groups. They are, They are getting people jobs. They're keeping those jobs, recidivisms down amongst the study group. But both groups are going back to prison at the same rate. Mm. So they bring me in to explain to their board technical parole violations, imprisonment for not committing a new crime, because that's what's happening here. These guys aren't Mm. committing new crimes or they're committing them at lower rates, but they're still going back to prison. And their board thought they were lying to them because Mm -hmm. they put a lot of money into this randomized controlled trial. So I explained it to them. I think I did a pretty good job. Sitting on the panel with me is one of their clients. This guy had come out of prison, got referred by his parole officer to go uh, get a job with this group. They got him a job. It was a good job, but it was an evening job. Uh, it was a tech job and it paid well above uh, minimum wage, but it started at eight o'clock at night. The curfew for parole is seven o'clock at night. He asks his parole officer, who, after all, referred him. He says yes. But the parole officer is not stupid. He doesn't ask for permission because by the time he got permission, the guy would never have gotten a job. He just tells him, yes, don't worry about it. I got you. But he doesn't put any of this into the the computerized records. Mm. That P.O. goes away. Another P.O. comes on. Same thing. Guy says, okay. Third P.O. comes on. This is all in 18 months. That guy guy says, okay. Fourth P.O. comes on. She doesn't even... Uh, hasn't even talked to him. She just goes to his house at seven o'clock at night. He's not home and she issues a warrant for his arrest. He gets arrested, spends six weeks in Rikers Island um, and he says to the to the board, when I went into Rikers Island, I had a good job, an apartment, a car, and a girlfriend. Six weeks later, by the time they figured out I shouldn't be revoked, all of that was gone.
0: That's no, all gone, yeah. And yeah.
1: the thing that was the most disturbing Was that he didn't? He wasn't even that outraged. He said, "I figured I was going to get screwed over at some point on parole because I talked to enough guys, Mm -hmm. and this wasn't so bad. It was only a six-week hit, and these guys are—they're helping me get another job." And I I was like, "These people—you know—they become so, so like used to getting stomped on by the system that a six-week hit is like okay on 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 balance, I could have been worse."
0: Yeah, it's just, that's so wild, and and I mean, just really unacceptable. I mean, of course, when there's heinous crimes, of course there should be you know, you know, good, good, good uh, measure for that. But I mean, we're talking about such like simple things, and just just the maximum amount, it, it just doesn't doesn't make any sense. So with the 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 story with Meek Mill, you know, obviously it's it's crazy. It's it's a crazy story. Um, but. I mean just paint us a picture I guess of I mean it's really bad in Philadelphia and it's disproportionately bad for black Americans in Philly yeah. if you I mean they had had at one point or they still do the highest incarceration rate, incarceration rate in the United States uh you can tack on to this if you want you know 150 miles down the road how it is in Baltimore as well it's it's terrible yeah. in Baltimore it's absolutely terrible in Baltimore so you know, maybe these two cities here, if you want, or Philly specifically, or then jump to Baltimore if you want, mix it in there. But I mean, what's the kind of you know state of where things are for incarceration and and, and probation, and parole, in, in in Philly and in Baltimore?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, when Meek Mill got revoked, more than half of the people in the jail were in on revocations, and um, you know they often just waiting, just waiting to, to see the parole board, uh, if they're on parole or to judge if they're on probation. Um, so yeah, no, and, and it's, it's really interesting because we're so kind of stuck in some respects in mass incarceration Mm. that it's kind of hard to think of our way out of it. And that's part of why I wrote the book. Um, and, and that was my experience with mayor Bloomberg, like the, the cool thing about working for Mayor Bloomberg that he was willing to he was willing to experiment. He, he wasn't bound by mm-hmm. tradition, and and some people would argue that was for the worse on on stop and frisk, and I'm, I'm yeah. with them on that. But mm-hmm. um, but but he was willing to let me try stuff, and so um, you can imagine a situation where you can say, all right, let's just think this through. Who? What do we want out of probation and parole? We don't really want technical violations. We don't want, we don't care whether a guy stays out past seven o'clock at night. What we want is less crime and we would like these people to flourish, right? <laughs> that's a decent society. We actually want to help these people out. So then I think if you can just back up and say that's what we want and, and how do we get there, then that changes the conversation. For me, if we want to help people turn their lives around, we don't don't want them to commit crimes. You can imagine a whole bunch of scenarios that don't look like our current system of mass supervision that look more like supporting people when they come home from prison. Fifty percent of people coming out of prison in New York go to a homeless shelter. Mm. A homeless shelter is where you go to fail when you yeah, come out yeah. of prison.
0: Yeah, yeah, and
1: yeah. New York couple of years ago spent over $600 million just on technical parole violations. Mm. And so could we, could we sort of do the math Xavier going into it and saying, mm-hmm. All right, let's just look at this group of eight, 9,000 guys. Right. And say how many people have drug problems? How many of them didn't have a house? How many of them needed a job? How much would it cost to effectively intervene in the pathway We know damn well many of them are going to take without a real serious bunch of help, not just a little help, a real serious bunch of help. How much would that cost? And let's stack it up to the thing we're doing now, which is essentially trail them, nail them and jail them. Mm -hmm. And I think if you could do that analysis that way, at the end of it, you'd have a lot more supports. You'd have a lot less or maybe no supervision depending on what you think you're getting for supervision, or maybe you'd supervise some people and not other people. And state after state has tried this. It's not ubiquitous, but California just reduced the amount of time you're under supervision to two years for a felony and one year for a misdemeanor, and they cut how much time you could get on a revocation. New York they passed a law uh, that uh, Governor Hochul signed. She signed it when I was head of... Uh, Uh, corrections at Rikers and 190 guys walked out the door and it basically said you can't be revoked for a lot of these ticky-tack fouls. If you do go up for a revocation, it's in front of a judge. It's not in front of an administrative hearing. And if you get revoked, it's for a week, two weeks, a month. It's not two years for a technical, not for a new crime, Mm -hmm. just for a technical. Mm -hmm. What they didn't do was they didn't capture the money and put it into the community. California did that. California funneled 150 million dollars to its counties for mental health treatment, drug treatment, and victim services when they reduced the number of parole violations. I think if you can if you can start to imagine it that way, you can get way more creative. And what I would argue is then study the hell out of it. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, it, we have such great big data nowadays. Let's use it for good and say maybe there's certain kinds of people. With certain risk levels that have committed a number of enough crimes, damn it, they gotta be on supervision when they come out. Maybe a whole bunch of other guys don't, and we put money into supporting them when they when they get released. My uh, predecessor is a guy named Marty Hornet. He was my predecessor at probation in New York City. He also once ran the New York City Department of Corrections, Rikers, he ran the Pennsylvania State Prison System, and he ran uh, parole for New York State. So this guy's super experienced. And he proposed abolishing parole, post-prison supervision. He said, it's not getting us anything. This is a guy who ran parole. Mm -hmm. And uh, what his proposal was, was do the calculation, like I said, and give them vouchers. Essentially, Mm -hmm. way early on, before the word crowdsourcing existed, let them crowdsource. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Give them money. Give Vinnie money. And... You know, in the form of a voucher that could buy him drug treatment, buy him housing, buy him this, buy him that. And then if he gets rearrested, arrested prosecute him for the rearrest. Mm-hmm. But if he doesn't, who cares? Yep. Who cares if he bought drug treatment or housing or mental health treatment or a job program? Why do we even need to care about that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, my proposal was a little more government-focused. Maybe I'm getting old and government-centric. I thought it probably wouldn't be bad to just go to the five neighborhoods in New York City that have the most, you know, people on parole and probation in them and sit down with the community leaders, the cops, the people that run the public safety committee and the public housing project, the you know, the ministers, the business people, the formerly incarcerated people and kind of plan it out a little and say, all right, let's let's buy this much housing, that much drug treatment, that much job programs. Either way, I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not married to my solutions. I think, I think we we're sort of stuck with this 1840s idea, hmm. uh, and and we we just keep doing it because we're afraid to innovate. Um, and I think that's, I think that's bad and wrong. I think it's harmful and I think it's wasteful.
0: Hmm. So what? Are you, I mean, I, I I totally agree with you about the the technicality things. So, you know, that that stuff seems just so. So, like, it's a, it's a dumb way to micromanage something, you know, and, and, and I, it's, just, it's just so silly to me. I new crime, sure, but, um, you know, maybe some of the 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 pushback here would be, but look, you know, well, what about Chicago and what about Baltimore and what about you know, you know, all these places have high crime and stuff like that you know you you can't be soft on crime you have to you got to deal with it right like that's the pushback i can hear in my head i mean what do you say i guess for some of these people that really still want to be tough on crime in these cities that still have high numbers i mean i think new york has brought it down over this year but yeah. it was really high you know yep. last year and, and this summer you know what 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 is the answer to that even baltimore's down let's let's know that not that
1: not that it's anywhere near what it should yeah. be but it's down yeah. by like 20% thank god yeah.
0: Yeah, which is um, yes.
1: Oh, yes. uh, yeah, it was really crazy, <laughs> and It still is. Um, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, no, I think that uh, what what my sense was, and I, you know, it's kind of interesting because some people are, you know, supporting me when I say this, and you know, I, there's a whole field of people on proba- of, of probation and parole commissioners. Some of them are very angry with me for saying this, and some <laughs> of them are whispering in my ears. Yeah, I think you got something there. I, I sat on a, a panel with a very conservative. Supreme Court judge from a deep South state. And somebody, I wasn't, I was really was talking more about reform than I was about abolition, but it was a room full of reporters. And one of them had read the book and he asked me, you know, about abolition and you know, right away, the judge next to me is like snarling. It's like, ah, you don't want to, you know, it's Angela Davis who's sitting next to me here. And I'm like, look, look, look. We, we, spend, we got 4,000 people on probation in New York, in Manhattan, the Isle of Manhattan. This was at John Jay. We're in the Isle of Manhattan. There are 4,000 people in this, on this island, on probation. We spend $20 million. I spend $20 million on a bunch of civil service protected bureaucrats who see them once a week. If I gave that to a bunch of community groups and churches and said, fix this, help these guys. They all live in your neighborhood. Come up with a solution to this. Don't you think that would do better? And, you know, the, the conversation moved on. And he leaned over and said, wow, I think he got something. <laughs> like, it was mm-hmm, really interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I got a foundation while I was at Columbia uh, who gave me money to go and find some places that might experiment with this, right? Mm, mm-hmm. And I found two sets of judges who were willing to randomly assign people to probation or not that were misdemeanors. And I got one corrections department head who was willing to take a portion of his state and not put people on parole. Mm. And then COVID hit and I went and ran Rikers. So I never, I never got to mm. do that experiment. But I also was uh, an expert on a case about private probation uh, down in Giles County, Tennessee, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, it was just, a, just an awful, really, of all the bottom feeding stuff in my book, the private probation fu- stuff is the worst.
0: I was uh, going to ask about this because I, I know some people have raised that as well. It's like, well, we, we just privatize it. You know, that's the answer. We just privatize it. Let's do that.
1: It's God. So what happens, a lot of these states— the state will pay for felony probation supervision, but if you want to do misdemeanor supervision, the counties have to pay for that. Mm-hmm. And so former probation commissioners like myself go to those counties and say, I can do this for free. Fire mm-hmm. your probation department. I'll do it for nothing, and I'll charge user fees for mm-hmm. the people on probation, many of whom are on for broken taillights. They didn't pay their fines. It's kind of like these folks living on the edge. They're not paying their fines, and then they're getting the fines get accrued more and more. Then they can't be rescued by their relatives and friends. And now they got to be put on probation and they got to pay for probation and they have to pay the fine as well. And so for many of them, the fees to be on probation exceed what the fine ever was, sometimes several fold.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: so some civil rights group, Civil Rights Corps, I think is the name of the organization, sued them and used me as an expert and they won. Mm. And so now in Giles County, Tennessee, there is no misdemeanor probation anymore. That experiment has been done. And again, Mm. I moved on to government work. But that's that's worth taking a look at. I talked to the federal monitor down there and I said, honest to goodness, do you think anybody in Giles County has even noticed that there's no Mm. more misdemeanor supervision anymore? He said, no, no, only the people that were on it. That's it. Mm. So I, I, I just think that you know, I, I don't want to be a crazy-eyed, you know, burn-it-all-down guy. I'm, you know, I'm I'm on my fifth big government job. Uh, I haven't burned any of them down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I, I think that the rhetoric around mass incarceration and mass supervision has driven us to do really ridiculous, counterproductive stuff. And that as we emerge from that, which I think we are to some degree, the number of people under, in prison and the number of people under supervision has declined. Uh, I mean, you even have people like President Trump passing the First Step Act, which resulted in the most significant decline in the federal prison system in its history. Hmm. Um, so there, there is a bit of bipartisanship here. There is a bit of a notion that this is ineffective. So I think a, a more a more interesting question to me is, how do we get ourselves out of mass incarceration? What do mm-hmm. we do to reverse this? I know what we don't do. We mm-hmm. don't send all these people back to, the, to Brownsville and South Central L.A. and South Chicago unsupported. Yeah, that yeah. is a setup for failure. Mm-hmm. Um, whether my solution is the best one, I'm open to people coming up with better ideas than me. That'd be great. I don't think the probation and parole solution is a good one, and I think there's lots of evidence in my book, which you should all buy and read, uh, <laughs> that that supports that.
0: Yeah, I have a, I have a I have a few 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 more questions here. Sure. One of them is is um, you know, there was this kind of uh, for a while, you know, it's just the way it was told was just very extreme. There was this movement for you know uh, defund the police. Right. There's this whole thing. And in people were, I, I think, rightfully so, laughing at it. it. It just sounds absolutely wild in some ways. Um, You know, we're going to have social workers, you know, monitoring the streets of, you know, I think I think this is post George Floyd 2020. Yeah. And people were just like, we got to We got we to gotta just we just you know, what, just we don't need police. I mean, that's just that, you know, they're all terrible. And, you know. <laughs> Um, I think there was a difference between abolishing and defunding whatever The point is is that you know it was very extreme, and you know even even many, many Democrats were like, no, 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 we this is a very extreme, you know, kind of progressive kind of idea. We're not for this, whatever. Um, but so I guess the question here is is you're talking about some communal or community aspects of, uh, you know, instead of probation parole, how how does there certain certain services there in the community? Which is obviously different than policing, right? I mean, we need police in cities. We need, obviously, we want them to be um, ethical and respectful and to do their jobs, which is a tough job, but to also be ethical, uh, which many are not, unfortunately. So what do you think about this kind of growth of alternative programs, defender services, you know, specialty courts showing this decline in incarceration and probation like places in New York City? And where could we see that in other places or all these alternative spaces, whether it's with the community or elsewhere, uh, instead of this very, you know, just kind of almost you know, draconian is a little dramatic. But, you know, this very hard line kind of, you know, you, 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 you're an hour behind your curfew or you're going to get a point of warrant out for your arrest, which is, you know, ridiculous. How do, how do we find some alternatives?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, yeah, I mean, I think New York City, you know, from the 1990s to recent times is a really good example of, you know, how you could work your way out of mass supervision. So if you go back to 92, um, there was, I think, Governor, uh, Mayor Dinkins was, was mayor then. There were about 82,000 people on probation in New York City. And another 22,000 people in Rikers Island, and from then up until right before the pandemic, so through Mayor Giuliani, through Mayor Bloomberg, and most of the way through Mayor De Blasio, the number of people in jail dropped from 22,000 down to 5,400, so about you know three quarters decline. Number of people on probation dropped from 82,000 down to 11,000, another more than three quarters decline. And crime plummeted in New York City. It became the mm-hmm. safest city, uh, large city, let's call it, in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so homicides went from 2,200, which is a crazy number, down to below 300, mm-hmm. right, you know, a year or two before the pandemic. So, you know, really, really great home run, right? We're spending less on prisons and uh, jails. We're spending less on probation. we got fewer people locked up. And we're still getting less crime. So I took a look at, you know, what made that happen? How would that happen? And it's, you know, there's no one answer to that. Again, it's like peeling an onion. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was obviously the decline in arrests meant there were fewer people walking in the front door to court to be jailed or put on probation. Mm -hmm. And so Mike Jacobson from the uh, City University of New York calculated that accounts for about 60 percent of the decline. But still, that means 40% is still unaccounted for. So where do we get that? One thing is New York City funded a lot more programs specifically to deport to support this group of people. Mm-hmm. The Fortune Society, the Osborne Association, the Virial Institute of Justice, they all had these different approaches to helping people find housing, jobs, drug treatment, just a friendly person to talk to, get a GED, all that kind of stuff, um, over and over and over again. And I document. The millions and millions of dollars that went into that, not as much as it would have cost to incarcerate them, but not mm-hmm. nothing, not free, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Public defender services were greatly expanded. Uh, and particularly what to me is the most interesting is public defenders started hiring social workers to help them navigate all these programs. So mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. telling you, like as probation commissioner, when people would come to explain to me what the different criteria were from their program... You need like a PhD to figure it out. So like, they literally <laughs> hired all these social workers like, no, this person shouldn't go to the Osborne Association. Mm-hmm. They should go to the, you know, Fortune Society because their crime, crime occurred on a Tuesday, not a Wednesday. You know, it was all this kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. whatever it was, they really honed in on the kinds of services and supports that the people churning into the front of the system needed. And the court's. And prosecutors responded in kind. They started to see this as viable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's similar to the way probation started. When probation started, judges saw this as viable. As time went on, judges in New York City, like when I showed up, when I showed up to run probation in the year 2010, no judge called me to to meet with me. No presiding judge in, in any of the five boroughs. You'd have thought like, I'm running your biggest program, guys. Call me up. Say let's meet. I called them all. I went and met with them. But they had all these other programs they were relying on. They stopped relying on us. Mm. I think that's a good thing. And I don't know how you replicate that in, you know, Idaho and Missouri and and Florida. Uh, And maybe you don't. Maybe you do it a different way. Maybe you, you know, go into the communities where lots of guys come from and see who's the the grassroots indigenous leaders in those communities. Maybe you get together with the cops and the cops come up with ways to deal with young people that, yes, I'm going to arrest you for doing something serious, but if you're not, I'm going to run a basketball league for you. You know, there's, uh, one thing, I, I don't think centralized thinking as a centralized bureaucrat, who has been a centralized bureaucrat many times, I don't think that's the best way to go. I think we should just get out there and start to talk to people about What safety means for them, because they actually have a really strong interest in safety in their communities Mm -hmm.
0: that I can't replicate from my downtown office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's, in a lot of ways, it seems like, I agree with you, That a model for something like that is important. And again, what that looks like in... Des Moines and, you know, uh, uh, you know, Tampa and, <laughs> uh, Reno is going to be a little bit different. Right. But I think some, some, some aspirational way of, of looking at that is, is important. So I guess the, the, the last question here is, you know, where, where do we go, right? What's the future of probation and parole for, for folks in, in the U S uh, you have some steps in the, kind of the back of your book, you know, about Getting the right people on the bus, growing a backbone, you know, make sure there's money there. You know, race matters and considering race uh, uh, challenges, um, starting with good principles and and following the data and sharing it. So, you know, these are some of them. But where do you just generally, I guess, see the the, the future of probation and and parole in in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that if uh, if I'm a if I'm a philanthropist listening in on this podcast, I go out and find a governor or mayor who wants to do something wants to do something substantially different, not Mm -hmm. just tweak the system and really kind of start at the goals of the system, not at how do we fix what we have, but how do we achieve what we want and work backwards? Mm -hmm. I don't think you can just go into poor communities and give folks money. I've seen that happen a lot of times. And and programs can get crushed because they really can't report. They can't do the books. I think people... As we reverse mass incarceration, if we're able to capture some of the savings and put it into communities that have had a heavy footprint from policing and incarceration, um, we need to do it well. We need to do it carefully. Uh, and I think cops like this, by the way. A lot of people think cops don't like this. I don't think that's true. I think cops like people mm. having programs to go to when they get in trouble, not if they commit murder and rape. That's what prisons for. But there's a whole bunch of crimes that aren't that, and mm-hmm. they don't like locking up guys that have drug problems, which is mostly what they do. Uh, I think they'd rather have a place for this guy to live and a job and somebody to help someone with his drug problem. So I don't think they'll be the enemies on this. Uh, I think they would support it. So I think that if you can, uh, uh, if you can get some backbone organizations to work in communities, resource them with the kinds of dollars we normally spend on incarceration, and then research the hell out of it, I think that's part of the elements of, uh, of, of uh, a reversal of mass supervision and mass incarceration, along with, as you said and I wrote, getting the right people on the bus, making sure that communities are there. There's good research to show that more cohesive communities, even when you control for poverty, and, uh, and and a bunch of other factors, if a community is more cohesive, if the people are working together, if there's a basketball league, if people mm-hmm. are going to church together on Sundays, if mm-hmm. people are volunteering to clean up the park, even in another neighborhood that's just as poor where that's not happening, the, the more cohesive neighborhoods have less crime. People watch out for each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we as a government can try to figure out a way to bolster that and not to mess that up, uh, mm-hmm. that will that will improve the impact of the dollars that we put back there. That's... Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, I ser- yeah. certainly. I, I certainly agree with all, all of that. I think that that's... You know, it's just, it's just a better, more humane way of, of trying to really to, to work with people. Uh, the book is called Mass Supervision, uh, Probation, Parole, and the Illusion of Safety and Freedom. And it's out everywhere. Uh... Vinny, this was so much fun. I greatly enjoyed our conversation about a uh, all too important topic. Obviously, you've been doing great work for for a long time, so I appreciate that. And um, just big, big thanks for for coming on here and and uh, and sharing all of the the wonderful things of your research and your work. I greatly appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much, Xavier, for having me on. This was a really great conversation. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Right, take care now.